We are um, continuing to work through our confession of faith, and we are in this grander section of God-centered living, which are the freedom and boundaries of the Christian life, which is chapters 21 through 30 of our London Baptist Confession. And our specific focus is still in chapter 22. Chapter 22 concerns religious worship and the Sabbath day. And you'll see here that we're on part four of this. It's been slow going. There's been a lot of questions. There's been a lot of discussion. And I anticipate more of that, particularly as we've now reached that section that discusses the Sabbath day. Um, So, after the manner and the object and the place of worship, remember we've talked about the regular principle of worship. We've talked about Um, the object of worship, uh, the elements of worship. Now the confession turns to talk about the time of worship in chapter 22, paragraph 7. And then the specifics of how to observe Sabbath worship in chapter 22, paragraph 8. We're going to try to cover paragraph 7 today and look at paragraph 8 next week. So, If you have any questions about the specifics of worship, like how do we observe or obey what this is saying, maybe hold those off until next week. We're going to talk more specifically about the time of worship. Um, I want to begin by asking you this question. What comes to your mind, good or bad, agreeable or disagreeable, When you hear someone say, keep the Sabbath, what do you think of, what is your experience regarding Sabbath keeping, and what arguments or thoughts come to your mind that maybe support or deny a Christian's responsibility to keep the Sabbath? What do you think of when you hear that? There's no wrong answers here. Just tell me something. Mary. So, I'm sorry, repeat that first part again. She thinks about homework and studying and what to do and what not to do on Sunday. Yes. (laughs) Melody. Okay. The Sabbath, often when we think about that, we think of the Jewish people and the Jewish Sabbath. Jill. Okay, so Jill's experience growing up is that the Sabbath is set apart in her family. And that there's focus on worship. Ethan? Uh, I mean, just taking out the theology book uh, and just reading and studying more doctrine. So reading and studying and thinking or, or, or meditating on the things of God. Okay. You guys are pretty quiet. I figured this would be some opening shots. Kim. I mean, it can also have a 
Chandler? Yeah, seeing it as a gift rather than the law. Uh, my personal experience growing up was that I was a fanatic baseball player and all the good traveling teams played on Sunday. And my dad would never let me join those teams and play on Sunday. And I saw Sunday as this burden, this just tyrannical thing. I hated it. I have, and so, even when I was converted, I gravitated towards circles in, in the church where, well, the Sabbath, that's, that's, the, that's the Old Testament. That's, that's the Jewish. There's, there's no Sabbath to New Testament. We've been freed from that. We esteem every day as alike. Romans 14. Let no one judge you on a festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Colossians 2. It's not repeated in the New Testament. We don't see the New Testament church obeying the Sabbath. Is what I was told, what I thought. And so I began, both of those together, even after I was converted, I was like, this is legalism if you're telling me that there's a special day. It's my experience. Jill? Exactly. That's, Christ is our Sabbath. Christ fulfilled our Sabbath, and so there's no other obligation. Eileen? Yeah, that's right. Um, there's many churches who will have Friday night, Saturday night services. Kim? Yeah, so we, we uh, like in our old hometown, there was this church that had a marquee that said, now offering three services to accommodate your busy schedule. Yes, there we go. And I was like, yeah, uh, because it's seen as such a burden. Well, I've got to get it in. So yep. Can I get in? Yep. You know, uh, Saturday night, yeah, that looks really good. Yep. Yeah, we, we live in a culture of Sunday fun day now. And it's, it's a primary day for recreation um, in our culture. And churches, unfortunately, contribute to that with their theology, but also with their, with their practice. So these are, these are legitimate issues. These are, you know, things that we need to think about. And these are things that the confession addresses. And as we get going on this, um, obviously... The Sabbath can be a point of sharp division among Christians. Um, we need to answer and ask and answer questions. Is the Sabbath Jewish, Old Testament, and thus abolished? Um, is this Sabbath Saturday or Sunday? That's a big one right there. Are we obligated to obey the Sabbath at all? Is it a sin to ignore the Sabbath? Um, what about the New Testament passages that we are to esteem every day alike and let no one judge you regarding a festival, new moon, or Sabbath because they are a shadow and Christ is a substance? How do we observe the Sabbath? Especially given that the New Testament speaks very little about it. And certainly not in any specific detail. These are, these are all questions that that come up and that, that, that Christians argue and debate. And um, let me just say that we're not going to get to all of them, but they need to be in our mind. And 
what I want to kind of impress upon you is that the Sabbath is a very complex issue. Very complex. And it needs to be approached with, with great care. Um, it cannot be solved by a few proof texts. And, and you know, and in fact I'm going to say this in the next hour, but we believe that the best way to approach Scripture, the right way, and we learn this from the Apostles in the New Testament, is to approach the Scriptures theologically. Not the Scriptures is just a handbook with a list of rules. We do this, we don't do this. It answers all these questions. But theologically, there are, there are things in Scripture that can only be understood theologically. There's not a verse that just explicitly says this. Right? And this goes back to our doctrine of Christian liberty in some respect. Thou shalt not take LSD. Okay, there's no passage that says that, but theologically we can build a case for, you know, that it's a sin to do recreational drugs. That's an extreme example. You get what I'm saying though, right? Um, we must look at this issue from both sides of law and gospel, Old Testament and New Testament, and ultimately, I want, to, I want you to see that the Sabbath commandment is given for our physical and spiritual health and nourishment. Yeah, yes, it does bind our behavior, correct, instruct in the sense of law. But ultimately, the gist and the emphasis of the command is that God seeks our good. And He wants us to listen to Him for our good. So, um, here is a screenshot from our sermon audio page. The circle that I preached on the fourth commandment back in 2019. Um, if you go on our sermon audio and you look for our ser series on the Ten Commandments, I cover more there than, than I'm going to be able to cover in this site. I'm just going to explain the confession today um, and next week. But that, that's kind of a narrow... It, the confession doesn't interact with opposing views and, and things like that. So um, if you want more, go listen to this. I think you'll find it, I hope that you find it, find it helpful. Um, will we honor the Lord's day? Um, but let's jump into this. Chapter 22, paragraph 7, the confession says, as it is the law of nature, that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His Word, in a positive, moral, and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto Him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week. And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which is called the Lord's Day. And it is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. Again, the confession doesn't go into the pros and cons and deal with opposing arguments. It just states very clearly, this is what the Scriptures teach. And brethren, this is what this church believes the Scriptures teach. And I want to explain some of this. Again, can't deal with every argument, but if you have a question, feel free to raise your hand as we work through this. Um, 
begins by talking about the law of nature. And if you've been with us through this series, you're kind of familiar with that term. Um, the law of nature is what is evident from general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky, the earth, His handiwork. Right? Uh, Romans chapter 1 speaks as well of, of, of the law of nature. That the invisible attributes and eternal deity of God is seen in the things that have been made. So that all people are without excuse. The law of nature is what is self-evident. It's not referring to what is said in Scripture. It's referring to what is self-evident. The law of nature teaches that God is to be worshipped. Because we look out at nature and we see we do not create. We are not the creator. We don't sustain. There is a being that is greater than us. There is a, there is a being who is more powerful than us. There is a being um, that is to be acknowledged and thanked and worshipped for everything that we have. Just on the basis of life itself. We don't give ourselves life. God gives us life. So the law of nature teaches us that God is to be worshipped and that a proportion of time should be given to worship. What does it mean to worship? Well, worship takes time. So the law of nature reveals this to us. Um, but we may say, how and why can we say this? What is the proof that the law of nature is proof, we might say? Um, a couple of things to think about here. Uh, think about how nature itself teaches us the value or the necessity of, maybe for lack of a better term, sacred space. Genesis 2-3. We see that the Lord creates, the reason that He creates in six days or seven days, instead of just in an, in an instant, is to set a model and a pattern for man to follow. God depicts Himself as a worker who gets up at sunrise, He works with His hands, He gets dirty as it were, creating, and then the day ends. And then He gets up the next day. And he works towards a goal. He works towards a purpose. He works to consummate. He works to take dominion. He works to glorify himself. Well, at the end of that period, he rests. That too is given as a pattern for man. Man, you are to work six days like God, imaging God, creating the image of God, and you are to rest on the seventh day. In God's example is itself a command. We are to follow and obey and model our God in all things. That's in creation itself. That's entirely outside. It's before sin. It's before the fall. It's outside of redemption in the sense of like, it just concerns creation. It's just part of creation is saying that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. It's as much as creation as the, the, the reality that two men are not to be married and two women are not to be married, but a man is to be joined to a wife. It's as obvious and as, as important as that right there. You don't distort creation. That is sin. One day in seven 
is the creation pattern, and we are called to honor it. But think more, too, as well. Exodus 20.11, when God actually specifies the Sabbath and commands it, what does he say? Points back to creation. He says the basis of this command is creation. Again, this, the Exodus, uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, concern the Old Covenant. But God goes outside of the Old Covenant, outside of redemptive history, to point to the creation pattern as a basis for this commandment. Shows us that it's moral, that it's perpetual. You can't just say that's the Old Testament. You can't just say that's Jewish. Because in the Jewish economy itself, the basis for it is outside of that. It's moral. Um, we covered this in chapter 19, that the Ten Commandments are the universal moral law of God written on the hearts of all people, perpetual and, and is the duty for all mankind. There's never a time in redemptive history when it's okay to murder your neighbor, or commit adultery, or worship another god, or blaspheme his name. Well, in the same respect, there's never a time in redemptive history where you can just disobey the Sabbath. It is a commandment. It is a duty. It is, you break the Sabbath to your own peril. God will judge you. That's harsh, I know, that's the law. You commit adultery, God will judge you. It's the same thing. You can't just pick and choose the commandments. So this is all, I'm building a case for moral law here. Um, but think about it just in general, that, that the health and flourishing of our minds and our bodies depend upon regular, sacred rest. That it's how we are created. You work seven days a week, you're going to break down. Your relationships are going to be destroyed. Your body is going to be destroyed. Your mental health is going to be destroyed. Or begin to deteriorate, maybe would be a better way of putting it. This is evident from nature. You can't work all the time. You need time for R&R. That's what the Sabbath, that, that's part of creation. God did not make you this way. And you oppose His will in creation when you act like you don't need rest. Notice as well that pagans, false religions, even the state, all people, all groups, all religions recognize and practice sacred space. Every religion has its holy days. Every stable society has its holidays. Whether you're talking about, uh, you know, a self-help program, a diet and nutrition and exercise program, whether you're talking about, you know, wh whatever you're talking about, everybody recognizes that sacred space is needed. This is by God's appointment in general revelation. That's what the confession is pointing to. All of these things right here. Creation, moral law, just evident from nature. Um, all people know it. 
all people practice it. Did you have a question, Sam? Yeah, I, I guess my question is related to like, um, why, is, why, is, why is it necessary for God to kind of, it seems, maybe I'm thinking about it wrong, but it seems to me that God's kind of like putting on this like stage play of finitude for us to imitate when he created us like in a finite state. So like, why is it necessary for God to be like, oh, I need rest, when he's like, I'm gonna, he doesn't need rest. Why, why does he need to kind of like put on that show for us to imitate when he could just be like, hey, worship me on the seventh day? Like, I don't understand that. I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, are you talking about how I, I mentioned that the creation pattern, the six days, is God modeling himself as a worker? Yeah, why, why does God need Well, he could just command it to, to do that, but that's in his condescension and that, that he is playing out, as it were, um, you know, the calling and commission of, of, of man. And we'll talk more about this in a moment. I know I say that a lot, but like Adam was to, Adam was given a specific commission to take dominion, to take the garden and expand it to cover the whole globe. And upon the success of that, he was then to enter God's rest, which would be confirmation in his final perfect state. He failed to do that, um, which is why we have no rest. <laughs> um, but that's what leads us to Christ. So maybe in one respect, maybe you could look at it from that standpoint in the sense that God depicts himself as a man in foreshadowing how he himself would become a man and complete that work and enter his rest for us, leading us into that rest. Dick? Uh, scripture says, no one understands the spirit of man except the man himself. No one understands the spirit of God except the spirit of God. There are many questions we don't understand. Why did he create? Why did he have the incarnation? Why did he have the crucifixion and the resurrection? I don't think anyone can possibly answer yeah, there is an element of mystery to it, without a doubt. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are not our thoughts. Can, did I see another hand? Yes, Mom? I'm going to return to that. You're absolutely right. But we're going to think more about that in just a moment. Um, so the point at this junction is nature itself teaches that not only do our bodies need rest, but God needs time to be worshipped. Right? That we can't just live perpetually concerning ourselves with the things of this life, but that God himself commands and expects us to devote some time to the adoration of him. So, 
Secondly, in this section, we see by His Word in a positive moral and perpetual commandment. So, there is this law of nature that at times should be given. By His Word, though, He's given a positive moral and perpetual commandment. Um, What is meant by this positive moral comment here? Um, do any of you remember, we talked about this several times over the past couple of months, the distinction between moral law and positive law? Joshua. Well, positive law is for like the Excellent. Yes. He nailed it. Moral laws based upon the nature and character of God. Which again, the nature and character of God is to rest. uh, The Sabbath rest. He depicted that for us in in the creation week. It's based upon himself. Um, It is perpetual. It lasts. it, it, It goes through all time periods and applies to all men in all periods for all time. It will never be okay to commit murder, even in eternity, because that's based upon the nature and character of God. Positive law is tied to the covenant. Positive law is tied to specific revelation. You you don't know the commandment to baptize unless the scriptures say, baptize. You don't know the commandment to offer a sacrifice unless the scriptures say, offer a sacrifice in the Old Testament. So, moral is all people at all times. Positive depends upon revelation, special revelation. Not general revelation that's available to all people and everybody knows it instinctively, but special. God must speak. God must reveal. And it's also tied to the covenant administration. So, the Sabbath, the confession is saying the Sabbath is both. How so? How is the Sabbath both? And what does this mean? Yes, Emma Rose. Well, it's positive because the, like the day of the week changed, right? And then it's more because we still have to keep it. Yes, exactly. So the moral is the call to rest. That's the moral aspect. But the positive specifies the time and the day of that rest. That's how it's moral positive. Everybody knows the moral aspect of it. But how are people to know what day to rest? That's the positive aspect of it. Maybe that can help you too think about how this commandment applies to unbelievers. How are unbelievers to... You might, you might say, well, how are the Gentiles in the, old, uh, uh, in, in old times, under the Old Covenant, how were they to know to obey the Sabbath since that was given just to the Jews? Well, they didn't know to observe the seventh day, but they knew instinctively by the law written on their heart that a time ought to be given for rest and worship. And the same could be true in our day. How do unbelievers who don't have access to the Scriptures who don't have knowledge of the scriptures, how does this commandment apply to them? Well, in some respect, we can't expect them to know that they they need to rest and worship on Sunday 
unless they're told from the gospel. Unless they hear that and know that. They just know in general that a time should be given. Jill? Absolutely. That's why all the different religions and people groups have this, this, these holy days, but not necessarily on Sunday. That's, that's relegated to Christian revelation in the Scriptures. So that's what the, the confession is saying here. So, setting apart a proportion of time to devote to the worship of God is perpetual in all ages across all covenants and periods of history. It is binding on all men, not just Jews, not just Christians. It is part of morality. As, it is as moral as not committing murder. And it is defined in Scripture as one day in seven following the creation pattern. That's what the confession has said up to this point. We've got to keep going. Think practically. How much time in our lives should we give to worship? I want you to think about this because sometimes I think that we sometimes I think we don't think through this. Sometimes I think we take it for granted what is obvious without actually thinking about the implications for what is obvious. In one sense, let me explain what I mean by that. All of life is to be lived with a heart of worship. You can speak of all of life as worship in one sense. But you, you know, but but there's a danger in 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 taking that too far beyond where scripture takes it because there are specific objective acts of worship as well. All of life is worship. Well, I'm sorry, but when you're you're studying for a biology exam, you're not worshiping God like you are here on Sunday morning. I'm sorry, there's a, there's a difference in that. You know, if you're a plumber and you're fixing a, a, a faulty toilet, it, it's not the same as when you were singing praises to God or reading His Word or engaged in prayer or in the communion of the saints or the Lord's Supper. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, well, everything is worship. Um, I can mow my grass and meditate on the glory of God and, and be edified more by that than on Sunday morning. And I said, well, you just undermine the entire doctrine of the church. Paul doesn't warn us not to, you know, fail to worship properly mowing our grass lest we get sick or die. But he says that about the Lord's Supper. Paul doesn't say, or the New Testament doesn't say, you know, when you mow your grass, there I am in your midst with you. But he does say that about corporate worship. There are specific acts of worship that are worship with a capital W. And all of life is more of a small W. Lowercase, I should say. So, think of my argument here. How much time in our lives should be given to the capital W of worship? 
Is it okay to just build fences, if that's your, your calling, all day, every day, 24-7, 365? No. It's simple. How much time should be given to worship? Well, okay. Is five minutes of Bible reading and prayer a day enough? What about five minutes a week? A month? A year? What if a Christian said to you, I've read my Bible and I've prayed for five minutes this entire year. I've done my duty. Wouldn't we say that's ridiculous? Excuse me? A bad heart. But wouldn't we expect God to like maybe give us some direction on this? That's not just our opinion. Well, five minutes is enough. What if a Christian said to you, you know what? We should attend church every day, which there are Anabaptists who say that. We should have corporate worship every day. There are evangelicals who say, or act as though going to church once a month is okay. What about once a quarter? What about once a year? You know, the Catholic Church defined it as if you want to be in communion with the church, you got to go on Easter and you got to go on Christmas. That's the minimum, two times a year. Are they wrong? On what basis can we say that they're wrong? Don't you see the tyranny of those who say there is no Sabbath? The tyranny. They can expect of you whatever they want. you got to be at church on Wednesday nights. you got to be at church this many times a year. you got to be at church this many times a month. You're following the traditions of man by saying, there's no Sabbath. We don't have to do anything. I'm free to do whatever I want. You're not free. You're under bondage. You're under bondage of the, of the commandments of men. Instead, we have the Lord Himself say, you know how much time that I require of you to be given in worship, with a capital W, one day in seven. There's freedom in that. And that's why I say, you know, for our Bible studies on Wednesday nights, for our prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, for our youth fellowship, for our college fellowship, for our other studies, it's a matter of Christian liberty. You're free to come and you're free to go. You don't have to. Sunday, that's not a matter of Christian liberty. Mary? Yeah, those are conversations I have, and the question is, you know, what about on Sunday? We have Sunday school, we might have a fellowship lunch, we might have other activities. Some churches may require all of this. This is a conversation I have with prospective members in the membership interview, and uh, our, our, our belief um, and our practice here is that corporate worship is a, the, the most specific um, observation of the Sabbath um, and again, we'll get to this. I hate to keep saying that. This is actually going to be next week. But, um, and uh, because that is, the, that is the context in which all of the elements of worship are there. 
And that's most specifically, so even Sunday school is a matter of Christian liberty, although I encourage people to come to it because it's connected to our worship, it prepares us for worship, and it teaches us about um, the scriptures and the things of God. That's a great question. The Sabbath answers that question of how much time should be given to worship so that you know what God expects of you, so that other people cannot lord it over you, and so that you don't go into sin by thinking, I've gone to church once a quarter, I'm good. God loves us by telling us what is good for us and what He expects of us. So, we expect that God's Word will instruct us here. i got to keep going. Um, I, I put that graph together just to kind of illustrate what I mean. Worship with a capital W. Um, in one sense, our work, we do all of life, um, you know, to the glory of God. It's an act of worship in some sense. Um, our rest is physical as well, but it's also spiritual. So there's an overlap there. Um, let's see if I can do that. Yeah, there we go. See that we see this overlap here between physical rest, but it's also worship, and we see worship that overlaps with work. But ultimately, those are three separate things. They relate to one another, but they're aspects of our lives that the Sabbath addresses. It tells us to work six days. And it tells us to rest. And it tells us to worship. Alright, so God's Word teaches us a proper work, rest, worship balance. He's not left it to the opinions of men. Working seven days a week is a sin because it destroys us. And it's part of the curse. Don't forget that in the sense of the toil that is. Not Work in general, work is good, it's part of creation, but um, in the sense that now under the fall, there's another aspect of it, the toil of the ground. Failing to work, though, is the sin of laziness. We're failing in our commission as human beings if we do not work. That's why the Apostle Paul says, if any man will not work, let him not eat. God is to be worshipped, but we must still give ourselves to the necessities of life. We are to set, a time, set, a time, set aside time for worship, but we still need to make money. We still need to do what God's called us to do. So the proper balance in God's economy is six days of work and one day of rest and worship. That's what the confession means when it says he is particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be kept holy unto him. Now, moving really quickly to wrap this up. From the beginning of the world to the resurrection was the last day of the week. From the resurrection, it was changed to the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. That's Revelation 1.10. Um, it is to be continued to the end of the world as a Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being ab- abolished. Um, under the law, the Sabbath was Saturday. Strict observance was required on the threat of death. Remember, you pick up sticks on the Sabbath, that man, and he got stoned. That's why you know it's a moral commandment. You know, there are no death penalties under the old covenant for positive laws. It's adultery, and it's murder, and Sabbath-breaking, it's blasphemy, idolatry. That, you're done. Uh, 
even uh, disobeying your parents. Um, there's no death penalty for positive or secondary aspects of law. That's how one, another way we know it's moral. The Sabbath under the law pointed to and emphasized the need to finish the work. Adam was given a commission to take dominion in the covenant of works, and he was to work in order to attain and enter God's rest of presence, his presence and eternal life. That was the goal. The Sabbath was the goal set before Adam in the covenant of works. Do this and live, which is the same commandment of the law. Do this and live. Do the work on the first day of the week, uh, excuse me, first six days of the week, and attain the reward. It was the administration of the law and the covenant of works. But under the gospel, Jesus Christ completed the work of the Adam, and he rose, and Hebrews 4.10 and 4.14 point us to how Jesus entered God's rest. Right? He has ascended into the heavenlies, the holy of holies. He sat down, that's the picture of resting, at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the man who worked those six days and entered into God's rest. So now our pattern is not work first and then rest, but rest in Christ first. And then work not to attain the reward, but in gratitude of receiving the reward. That's what gets at what, Mom, you were saying earlier. In one sense, that's true in creation because... God created man on the sixth day and then rested. The first day of man was the seventh day. Uh, but ultimately, the pattern is for the law. And then, of course, the gospel has changed. We can, see, we can see the anticipation of the first day of the week, even in creation, which man screwed up because of the fall. Jill? I'm sorry, repeat that again. Is that how we should be viewing the argument how um, grace has fulfilled the Sabbath? Is that we no longer have the Saturday, we have now the Sunday being completed? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. So her question is how do we think of the new covenant Sabbath? Christ fulfilled the old covenant Sabbath and now he gives us a new covenant Sabbath? Absolutely. Yes. He, he, all of the Ten Commandments come to us differently in Christ. Right? That, he, that we receive them from his hand, not from Moses' hand. And under the terms of the new covenant, not the terms of the old covenant. The Sabbath is the same way. And the, the, the law prophesied of this. If you look in the law, it uh, speaks of, in the prophets about the, the eighth day, the, 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 the day of jubilee. Uh, jubilee. You know, the, the, the rest where you give the land rest. You set slaves free and all debts are forgiven. Uh, the, the Old Testament concept of jubilee we are now in that age of jubilee because Christ has set us free. We are, and it's the eighth day, the first day of the week. Um, we'll, get, we'll get more into that. But this is how the pattern has changed. And so this is an administration of the gospel in the covenant of grace, that we rest first and then work. This is why the day has changed. That's why those who cling to a Saturday Sabbath are really turning back the clock of redemptive history as if Christ didn't come. As if it still depends upon us. There's important imagery in the first day of the week as well. Christ rose on the first day of the week. 
And there's emphasis in the New Testament. You'll see this repetition the first day of the week. First day of the week. Christ rose on the first day of the week. His first appearance to the disciples was on the first day of the week. The day of Pentecost was on the first day of the week. And then in the book of Acts, if you'll see, they gather on the first day of the week. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says on the first day of the week, when you gather, when you come together. Like, the scriptures don't mention days unless there's some importance to that. And what we see is theologically in the New Testament, the church is doing Sabbath things on the first day of the week. And that's the theological argument. Don't tell me that there's not a commandment to observe the Sabbath in the New Testament. There is a commandment by way of example. The early church worshipped on the first day of the week. So this is why we say the Saturday Sabbath has been abolished. It has been replaced from the hand of Christ as the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. It is the first day of the week. So, i gotta, I got to conclude and we're going to come back to this next week. Bodily rest from work and spiritual rest in worship is both exemplified and commanded by God in both general and special revelation. God defines the appropriate period of that work and rest and worship balance as one day in seven. Saturday was a Sabbath according to its administration under the law before Christ came. Sunday is now the Sabbath according to Christ and its administration under the gospel. And next week, we're going to look at, well, what does this mean? How do we obey or disobey the Sabbath? Because we've already acknowledged it's not exactly the Old Testament Jewish Sabbath. It's different. How has it changed even in our observance? How does the new covenant inform our observance of it? Um, That's what we're going to look at next week.